Tēnā koutou and hello everybody. Welcome to the Lento Intervention Podcast. My name is Ben Adelberg and I'm coming to you from Tamaki Makoro, Auckland. And g'day, I'm Emma Strutt and I'm currently coming to you from Gungaloo country in Queensland. Before we dive into our conversation today, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. The Lento Intervention is an Australasian educational and advocacy platform dedicated to raising awareness about the current climate and health crisis. And on this podcast, we invite guests to chat about topics that will inspire you to take action to improve your own health and the health of the planet. So please subscribe to and share this podcast and visit our website for the full show notes. And don't forget to buy us a copy if you'd like to support our work. For the month of May, we're involved in two campaigns. Firstly, in collaboration with No Meat May, Emma is delivering two plant-based nutrition webinars. And by the time this podcast airs, her second one is tomorrow, Tuesday, the 17th of May. But the other one is our very own ongoing campaign, The Athletes for Nature. And if you've been following us on our socials lately, you'll see that we've been posting about the health benefits of immersing in nature, of which you'll also find the complete set of slides on our website for you to download. The point of all this is that they point to a common thread, and that is lifestyle, lifestyle medicine, of which is one of our very own, the Lentil Intervention's key pillars. So our next guest is perfectly timed. That's right. Um, so today we're sitting down for a chat with Dr. Angela Egan from Townsville. She's a trained GP who now specializes in heart and lung surgery and is also extremely passionate about environmental issues, preventative health, as well as closing that health gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. So on the podcast, Ben and I are always banging on about the fact that it's really important to understand the science when it comes to health and environmental issues, but that's only part of it. We also need to be taking action to work towards a better world. And Angela really is walking the walk here, so much so that she's actually decided to run as an independent candidate for Herbert in the upcoming federal election. We're not here to tell you who to vote for today. We're going to stay apolitical, but we're very interested in finding out what lights that fire in her belly. Um, so lots to talk about. Angela, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Em. Thank you, Ben. Um, I'm coming to you from uh, Wugurukuba and Bindal country. And as you said, that's in Townsville, northern Queensland. In the traditional language of the Bindal people, Watamuli is welcome. So I welcome you to our land up here. And thank you. Thank you. So, Angela, let's start with learning a little bit about yourself before we deep dive into so many topics we can talk about. Townsville, tell us about your background and your journey to ending up on the northeastern coast of Queensland. Ben, um, my career was actually quite non-linear. I started as a medic in the Australian Army, and that's how I ended up in Townsville. I actually didn't finish year 11 um, and joined the army and through the army this allowed me to have a career progression and further my education. By the time um, I've, I'd finished 20 years in the army I'd actually completed two degrees by then, nursing and then medicine. I also deployed to the Solomon Islands through the army and that was my first real introduction to the healthcare system for developing countries and the, the issues that they face. So uh, I got out of the army and stayed in Townsville with 
it had become my home and I raised my two children here and that was where I actually studied medicine at James Cook University. And you've also spent some time on Palm Island. That's right, Em. So it actually, when I got out of the army, I actually found it difficult to transition into civilian living, being to the Solomons, and military medicine is quite different to urban medicine. Um, a friend of mine said, hey, why don't you come to Palm Island? And that seemed like the perfect fit for me, having been to the Solomon Islands. I, I actually was really saddened when I got there to realise that and I'd had visit other rural Indigenous communities throughout Northern Australia. It was actually like the Solomon Islands, and yet I was in a wealthy country, and I just I couldn't believe it. Here I was thinking I was in the army, gone off to help other people in other nations, and yet my own people were suffering the exact same things. And I imagine, like, as you said, your workload there would have been hugely different to the average urban GP. Um, so how did your time there kind of help shape the path that you're on now? And I actually spent six months originally when I got out of the army as an urban GP. Um, and I felt, uh, in fact, I was going to quit medicine. It just wasn't the career path that I had envisaged for myself after all that time. So, I, yeah, that's why I ended up in um, Palm Island. I lived there for two years and it's fantastic. The medicine is exciting. You feel like you're making a difference and you're helping your own people. The only real problem was uh, we have a, an incredible work shortage in attracting doctors to remote Indigenous communities or even regional communities in northern Australia is, is difficult. So not only do we not be able, we cannot attract them, it's difficult to retain them and, and I was one of them and the only reason I really left was purely and simply I just burned out. Um, there was myself and another registrar in a community that just is, is a busy community. It's like North Queensland time is the same as remote Indigenous community time. Is never a Monday to Friday nine to five job. It's the two of us. We ran the hospital, we ran the GP clinics, we ran the emergency service after hours. It just wasn't sustainable. I've got to say, that's what leads me to where I am now. I came back to Townsville. So Palm Island is only 65 kilometres off the coast of Townsville and it's a 15 minute flight, yet you feel like you're in another world. So I came back to Townsville and I started working in the, the intensive care unit at the Mater Hospital. And that's where I met a cardiothoracic surgeon who said, hey, do you want to come and assist me doing heart and lung surgery? Which again, suited me because I like to use my hands. I'm more, um, yeah, love to use my hands. And it, it was great. Cardiovascular disease is a big burden for Indigenous health people, not only in, and in the Caucasian community. And that was over five years ago, and I'm still doing that for him now. So, so let's talk about heart health a little bit. Um, very serendipitously, we're actually recording this episode in Heart Week here in Australia. Um, and, you know, we've made some, some good progress in Australia and, and New Zealand as well like regarding the prevention and the treatment and the management. But as you pointed out, it's still a huge burden on our society um, and it disproportionately affects some populations 
more than others, um, particularly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, so w- what are some of the key things that we should know here about heart, stroke and vascular disease? Yes, Em, as I said, it is the number one um, killer across the board, cardiovascular disease. In fact, chronic health disease is the biggest burden on our healthcare system. We spend $82 billion in the health budget every year, yet actually only less than 2% is spent on prevention. And these diseases that we'll talk about today have a huge component, which is preventable. And to me, I, I don't know why we're not addressing that. It's, it just seems all too easy, a modern lifestyle, to come and take a tablet when really what we should be doing is looking at preventative measures. I think, and as you rightly said also, it does disproportionately affect certain people in our community and uh, Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander, Pacific Islander and even the Maori people of New Zealand are overrepresented in this group of people over two times more than the non-Indigenous uh, people. Also, women are overrepresented. It's represented. Sorry, it's um, traditionally like when I went through uni, it was taught. You know, being of gender male, being male was a risk factor. When in fact, it's actually women. It's the number one killer for women. It's just that women tend to present differently or don't present at all. Or we often talk about women having no symptoms at all until they have a heart attack. I just wanted to maybe ask you a couple of questions about you you mentioned that the symptoms can be different between males and females and they present differently so what what should we be looking out for you know like what are the different symptoms for males and females the classic symptoms we talk about of chest pain in fact for women may not get the central chest pain they might get an ache in the jaw an ache in the shoulder an ache in the left arm or no pain at all and predominantly that's what happens with women so all the teaching we learn about we all talk about that crushing central chest pain in fact women don't necessarily have that at all and you've also mentioned that um which which is you know we've been saying this a lot in a a number of these health related episodes that we've had but a lot of these are preventable what what are some of the the driving factors then to that 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 present these these high incident rates if it's present preventable what are we actually doing that's causing this if we look at the risk factors for cardiovascular disease number one thing is smoking we still see a high percentage of people smoking in the population in fact when i ask people when they come for health checks when did you stop smoking it's usually the answer when i had my heart attack And in fact, for Indigenous people, this is the number one risk factor. They're four times more likely to be smokers than non-Indigenous people in our community. The other risk factors, if we look at, are obesity and being overweight, poor diet, nutrition, insufficient physical activity, and obviously the classics are high blood pressure and high cholesterol. They're all modifiable risk factors. They're all within our grasp to change those. There's one that we can't change, and that's your your genetic predisposition or your family history. But even so, a lot of people will tell me they have a strong family history of cardiovascular disease or heart attacks. But when you really dig down into it, a lot of the people that they'll list as as having a family history will be 
my grandma died age 80 of heart disease or um, my grandma and my pop and my brother but they were all heavy smokers so when you tease it out family history although you can't change that and it is something we would never overlook it is the modifiable risk factors that are, that we need to change so do you think that the messages are filtering through the communities that you work with these healthy lifestyle types of messages or do we need to be more effective in our communication i don't think it's filtering down i mean we're still seeing it as the number one cause for the deaths in australia i went off um I, one of the things i really like to do i'm part of the um, community um, i guess outreach team we go into schools it's called um, stars indigenous teaching and i go along for healthy yarning and I talk to the young girls there and let them know about how smoking causes cardiovascular disease. And I'm still alarmed that so many young people still think it's really, uh, it's trendy or they can join the group if they smoke. I mean, that was something when I was growing up and it, it's still just as relevant today as it was when I was growing up. So obviously the message isn't filtering through. It seems to me that we can put all the the warning um, pictures on cigarette smokes, but ultimately it doesn't seem to be making much of an impact. It seems to be not until you've had your heart attack or not until you've seen someone significant in your family have their heart attack that they decide or the person decides, I think I should quit smoking. And the same, I, I take it, would be for... Um you know, diet, um, and, and we can use the word very loosely healthy diet, because what's the definition of that? Uh, appropriate physical activity. Um, there's a whole of other lifestyle medicine parameters, sleep quality, uh, et cetera, et cetera, the list can go on. Um, what would be some of the other, so smoking is number one, what would be some of the other key areas that one should not just be aware of, because awareness everyone seems to be good with, but actually take action with? Um, we talk about metabolic syndrome, and this is our next epidemic. Um, and metabolic syndrome really is obesity. It's about having a high cholesterol, and it's about having low, um, high-density lipids. We call them, I call them the, the happy lipids, if you like, so we need, they're quite low. It's about having high blood pressure and a fasting glucose. That's, and the central obesity, that's metabolic syndrome. and. That is creeping up on us and it's purely a lifestyle disorder leading to diabetes, fatty liver disease. And then obviously they're the cardiovascular risk factors for having a stroke or a heart attack. And again, they're completely preventable. And that's to do with what we put in our mouth. We just become so busy in society that our modern lifestyles, it's easier to, you know, busy mum, dad, myself even included it's just easier to to race in and get a convenience food so we know ultra processed everybody agrees ultra processed is just a bad thing and it's something that's become uh i guess synonymous with modern society it's convenient it's easy it's cheap it's on the shelf it's put in a bag you can eat when you want it tastes great it smells great etc it's well marketed etc what else? What else should we be avoiding or what else should we be uh, putting more attention on in terms of what we do consume? I'd have to say 
not on the consumption line, but the fact that we're less active. So it's just so much easier. People work work so much, come home. I'm just too exhausted to go for a walk. I'm, they choose to take the car to go to work when they should be riding or walking. So it's a, not only is it what we're putting in our mouth, so input in, but it's the output. We're not physically as active as we used to be. So, you know, we now have got a remote control to, we don't even have to get up off the couch to change the TV channels. It's a remote control. So with all this, with your experience and your background, why is there a disparity between indigenous communities and non-indigenous communities? Because we see that rift. What, what are the rates and what are the causes of that? We know that as you move out of cities, we call it with rurality comes poorer health. Not only poorer health, but poorer education. We know that the social determinants of health are reliant upon somebody's education, someone's access to quality health care, quality food and nutrition. These all impact on someone's ability to have better health understanding or health literacy. In rural, remote, indigenous communities, it's viewed sometimes as white man's medicine. And I just maybe want to follow one particular thread there with what you've mentioned, because I know this is something you're quite passionate about, um, is the issue of food security in rural and remote communities. You know, as we've discussed, sound nutrition is absolutely essential for good health and preventing chronic health issues like this. Um, but, you know, the access and the cost in these areas can be a significant issue. Um, what are some of the key things that are driving this? So absolutely, and I think the first time people have seen what food security is all about is with the pandemic. And in the cities, they couldn't get access or availability to food. And that's what we deal with in North Queensland every wet season, remote Indigenous communities on a daily basis. People are starting to realise what happens out here or can it have some understanding. Even myself on Palm Island, we wouldn't shop at the local shop. We'd wait till we went back to the mainland where you could shop in a major supermarket because the prices were so much cheaper. For example, we know research has shown us that 39% higher prices compared to the same foods in major supermarkets in capital cities, 39%. This is in a community that don't have the wealth that people have in big cities, and yet they're being charged a lot more. Some of the reasons are, you can say, the transport costs, the fact that there's only ever one supermarket in these rural and regional community so there's no competition for that even to get fresh fruit and vegetables they often spoil by the time they're transported out to these communities if i can just sort of draw attention to the fact that a basket of common food items that cost about 73 dollars in say brisbane would cost about 118 dollars in a remote community you can see why people often go without the basic quality nutritious food because it's simply unaffordable. Even on Palm Island, one of our biggest fights or our 
biggest thing was that it's actually cheaper to feed your family by going to the fish and chip shop. A lot of people don't even have refrigeration, so what's the point of buying fruit and vegetables? So when the barge would come in with the fresh fruit and vegetables, there was no point in stocking up because you had nowhere to store it, so it would just spoil. So it was much easier, much cheaper to eat fruit and uh, eat fish and chips. We see that actually meat and milk are consistent more expensive, which is actually heartbreaking because we know that despite what we're told, they're not essential to it, but there are no options often in remote communities don't have the options that you and I have when we walk into a supermarket. Yeah, it's it's crazy. It's crazy to to think that, you know, being in ta- uh, in Queensland, a lot of people think, well, Queensland, it's where a lot of the, the amazing tropical fruit are, is grown and, and it's where there's a lot of fresh produce. You must, you know, you must have the luxury of it. Whereas here in New Zealand, for instance, we've got to import half rotten mangoes that cost $5 a pop. But now to hear this, that's a massive misconception because firstly, I guess if you're not from Queensland or or Australia itself, we forget how big and vast it is. Um, And therefore, uh, you know, in plays the the, the economics of it, you know, transport, um, it could be days to to reach small communities, Um, things would perish. So there's the cost of that. yeah, it's 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 that understanding and I guess that empathetic approach to understanding why well why is it? Why is it people that live in, in areas that should have availability literally at their at their fingertips, why is it why is it so hard? And why do we have um you know, why are the health statistics so poor in those areas when you'd think it should be better, but actually, like you say, with food security, there's a major driving force. Yeah, Ben, you're completely right. It is beyond belief that the fact all the fruit and vegetables, the major commercial farms in the area, all of it is actually sent down to, to the city markets, to Brisbane, to Sydney, to Melbourne, and then it's actually transported back up through Woolworths and Coles rather than being sold here at farm gate prices. So do you think one of the keys then is to start to decentralise the distribution centres and have more support for like local businesses to to take up that mantle. Absolutely, and we if we go up to Cairns, they have amazing farmers markets where everybody brings their produce in, and the markets run weekends, but throughout the week. we just don't have that here in Tasville. It really is all sent down to the majors to the major cities. So support in our community for farmers markets would actually provide fresh fruit and vegetables at a much cheaper rate. Yeah, we've often spoken about the, um, you know, why fresh produce is more expensive than, say, meat and dairy. And, and a big po- uh, component of that is, is subsidies, you know, for, for, for those industries that makes it often cheaper. Uh, but in this case, that's not so much the reason. Um, there's there's other forces at play, and I'm scrambling in, in my brain to 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 remember. There's a couple of documentaries I've seen a few years old now, but in in the US, I think that is starting to happen now, where they're trying to decentralise a little bit of of the big corp 
you know, grocers and bring more, uh, bring back more of those local community-based markets. The irony with Brisbane, though, having experienced it myself, having lived there for a little bit, is Brisbane also has wonderful markets, but it's coming from your end. <laughs> you know, that's that's the irony. Is 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 sure. So Brisbane's living the dream and 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 having those wonderful Saturday markets or midweek markets, but really. Um, those that should be benefiting from from the luxury of being in that particular area is is um, is really the one forfeiting. Um, so so there is a lot of change that needs needs to take place. Um, what else? So there's food security. What what else is driving? Um, you've spoken about education. Um, education and 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 knowledge is perhaps not as as well uh, distributed. In, in more rural areas, and, and that could be an accessibility thing as well. Are there any, any other factors at play here? I think a lot of it comes to the fact that we don't have enough Indigenous people fulfilling health roles. So when you don't have Indigenous people speaking the language, understanding um, what it's like to be living in these rural areas, so we really do need to encourage and make pathways indigenous take up healthcare roles and go back to community and really feel leadership roles so do you think that um we potentially need to i know this is always a delicate subject but do you think we should start to look at you know quotas and percentages of first year med students being from aboriginal or torres strait islander background to start shifting the dial a little bit there? Or what, what do you think is a good pathway forward? I think the university that I went to, JCU, they recognise, I mean, obviously our goal there was um, Indigenous remote, or, sorry, Indigenous remote uh, tropical diseases. And the whole setup was to, to prepare doctors to stay in community. So, I mean, we're doing it and I can't speak to other universities, but if there's no programs that are set up and teaching and allowing people to stay in community and talk about these issues, then that's number one. You, you need that system set up. Also, the fact is that you need to rec and we need to recognise that people need to be... Um, I mean, we, again, a sensitive subject. We talk about equality, but we don't talk about equity. So somebody coming from a remote community has just not had the same education or access to it. So we'll never achieve that score required to get into a certain degree. So we need to not only bridge health gaps, but there's education gaps and recognising that people need extra support because they purely came from behind behind the eight ball, if you like, from the get-go. It's also, I suppose, about rec uh, recognising that, um, you know, Indigenous culture takes a very holistic approach to health and there's a lot that we can actually learn from that and the Western model of medicine, I suppose, is very almost closed off to that at the moment. So just actually changing the the approach we take when teaching these types of subjects would probably make this a lot more open to a wider audience to start participating and being interested in doing so. That's a 
that's the problem, isn't it? That we talk about indigenous language, indigenous culture, but it's many cultures and many languages. So what works for Palm Island may not work for Central Australia and certainly doesn't work for New South Wales or Victoria. Even um, I'm married to an Aboriginal man and his experiences are very different to the experiences, even though we still have family on Palm Island, uh, his growing up experiences are different to the experiences for his cousins on Palm Island. And so there's no one fit rule, there's no one fit method. The only really way we can do it is by bringing all key stakeholders together and allowing people or indigenous people, indigenous cultures to look at healthcare rather than someone like myself. You know, my experiences are very different and I still, to this day, I mean, I, I don't understand all of the influences that, that make up why someone does or does not choose Western medicine. So we acknowledge there's a gap. We acknowledge that change needs to happen um, and it needs to happen from the education level to start filtering through that. that. But are you seeing any change currently in your area of work? Um, you know, are, are, are people driving for change? But not just driving. Is that change actually starting to happen? It's 2022. You know, a lot of people are wisening up to the fact that, you know, there's a lot to be learnt from all cultures, not just Western society that came out of Europe. Um, is that is that already starting to happen? Are we st and and if it is, are we starting to see some benefits from that? That could be the catalyst for more change to accelerate. Look, I think slowly it is starting to happen. Um, I know of um, at least five um, it, local Indigenous girls that are keen to go into the healthcare profession. There's a, a couple of um, OTs, a doctor, and a nurse. Um, my husband's daughter, she's actually studying um, to be a midwife and a nurse down at UQ. So it's happening. There's pathways there. And it's really just uh, making sure that the, the kids we want in these pathways know about these pathways. But there's, I mean, my, my husband's daughter is still, at, is still at uni. She's only in her second year now. So we're getting there. It just seems to be a little bit too little, too slow. We are slow walking the issue. It needs to be a lot more positions available and a drive to get these kids into healthcare and back into communities or to, to incentives to stay in communities. And more funding for the initiatives like Healthy Yarning, for, for example? Yeah, look, um, as part of the Healthy Yarning, that's the STARS program, it's fantastic. And to be honest, look, I, I do major heart and lung surgery and I love it, but the biggest or the most gratifying thing is to go into the schools and talk to the kids and have someone say, you know what, miss, I'm going to stop smoking because I don't want to die. It's, it nearly brings tears to your eyes because that's where we need to be focused is on the children, preventative health so that they don't end up on the operating table. But sadly, I won't be able to do that come December because the funding has been has been cut. Yeah, funding is, um, <laughs> we've had our own experiences applying for funding for, for some of the, the work we want to be doing. And yeah, especially post COVID, it's a lot more difficult. And and I know well-established charities here in New Zealand, like Plunkett, um, you know, some, some well-established uh, 
uh, you know, maternity related programs, those are being culled because they, they just don't have the funding. So that's really, that's a shame. And it's a big challenge because there's so many good organizations like the Healthy Yarning that provide such critical support and, and, um, and services that without those, the gap only widens. Um, so that's, that's, that's a challenge. I think the sad part, um, Ben, is the, the funding's been cut and redirected down to the Olympic Games. So that's really hard to deal with because that's not the only funding. There's one that um, my niece runs part of PCYC and she works with young kids and in trying to engage them to stay in school, um, a really positive program. Well, her funding stops again it stops in June and it'll be redirected to the Olympic Games because that's more important. Priorities, interesting. Um, one thing I did just want to um, talk to you about, though, on the topic of Indigenous health before we kind of fall down the rabbit hole too far, um, bringing it back to heart health, rheumatic heart disease and rheumatic fever, um, that unfortunately continues to cause significant health concerns in Australia. Tell us about that. It's actually a disease of poverty and you predominantly see it in developing countries. Yet in Australia and New Zealand, wealthy countries, we're actually overrepresented. So that's Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander, Pacific Islander and the Maori people. Why are we still seeing this burden of disease in our healthcare system when it really is preventable? And we just, it shouldn't happen. And in fact, if you mention rheumatic heart disease to a doctor outside of a major capital city, they probably don't know too much about it. That's it. So what, what's it caused by? What, what do we need to know? All right. So if we start back at the beginning, it's, it's quite simple. Um, so it's caused by acute rheumatic fever. Now, acute rheumatic fever is simply a complication of, say, a strep throat infection, so that's group A streptococcus, a simple group A strep throat infection or skin infection. And so what happens is it's a, an immune response where the body decides instead of just attacking the, the throat or the skin, it's a systemic inflammatory response and it starts attacking other parts of the body. For example, the heart and in particular, the heart valves or the heart muscle. When it attacks other parts of the body, there's no long-term consequences, but when it attacks a heart, that's how you end up with rheumatic heart disease. And this is what we need to try and stop. So what are the, you know, the preventative measures that everyone should be aware of? Do we need to, you know, make sure we're actually getting to the clinic if we have a sore throat or do we need to be washing our hands more? That's been drummed into us lately in the last couple of years. Uh, what are some of the key things we need to be aware of? Look, Em, the reason I say it's a disease of poverty is because it's from overcrowding, it's from poor nutrition, it's exactly those determinants of health that we spoke about and that's why you see it in Indigenous populations where a three-bedroom home might actually have up to 10, 15 family members. So you see the group A, you see the strep, bacteria circulate more, the burden's a lot higher. And that's why people are more, um, have a predisposition. So what you need to do is comes back to basics. We need to provide adequate housing. 
and we need nutritious food, all the things we spoke about, if we're going to, to make um, any indent on this, this disease. As for going off to the clinic, well, you need access to healthcare, don't you? But it is quite tricky to diagnose in that some symptoms are so mild that somebody may not know that they've actually got a strep throat infection. So it's having a high index of suspicion. It's about healthcare professionals that work in those communities understanding that and always thinking, could this be acute rheumatic fever? It doesn't always pre present with the full-blown um, signs of a, of a big high temperature of a skin rash. I suppose this might come back to, again, a, a point you've already touched on, the importance of keeping people working local. Like I, I grew up in a re regional area, rural, was classified as rural for medical rotation. So people would come out from the city and do their short little stint to get that box ticked and then they'd go away again. And if they're city-based, as you say, they might not have an awareness of what to look out for with something like this. Um so do you think, you know, that plays into it? Look, most definitely. And on Palm Island in our clinic, we would have signs everywhere, what to look out for, and it would be culturally appropriate signs to try and educate the community. But still, diagnosis is incredibly tricky, and we've still seen people who, who when I've seen them, said, oh, I came last week and I had a bit of a sore throat then. And I mean, it's difficult because of the language. Maybe um, maybe they didn't mention the sore throat. But it really, like you said, comes back to having people, um, people that from the community, because you feel more comfortable talking to your own kind. I mean, I know what it's like when I'm in a room full of men, you don't feel as comfortable. When I'm in a room full of women, you just you relax and you you feel more comfortable and you for, you're more forthcoming. So to have um, have a young and, and we're talking about a disease that, that affects five to fourteen year olds. So that's mum or dad bringing them in for a starter. You don't see these these children aren't going to come in on their own. So that's mum or dad bringing them in. But having the confidence to come in knowing that, well, it's a white doctor on today, maybe I'll just wait or maybe I don't trust that person and maybe it is just a sore throat and it doesn't matter, they'll get over it. Now, just to shift the focus just a tiny bit, um, we've spoken about a lot of the, the um, I guess, causes of detrimental health outcomes, but there's also the impacts from climate change. And this is something we have spoken on previous episodes, the, the, the health effects and or detrimental health effects of, of a lot of uh, the, the, the more extreme weathers we're getting, dust storms, fire, um, even as far as, um, you know, fossil fuel um, pollution and so on. So I believe you have quite a passion in that space as well. But to link it all back, is there also a disparity between the various communities in terms of those health impacts from climate change, pollution, and so on? Look, absolutely, Ben. In northern uh, Australia, we rely on um, fossil fuels. So a lot of people are employed in fossil fuels. 
And climate change is not something that's ever brought up or even still acknowledged, even though we know the science is clear, we've known for 30 years, we now know that if we don't do something in the next eight years, we will reach those tipping points. And it surprises me that we've had major bushfires in New South Wales, and where I grew up and was born was in Lismore in northern New South Wales, absolutely decimated by the floods. And it was a week before we had communication with my extended family there. And then just listening to their stories, I was in tears, absolute tears. And I worry for my community because we seem to have not even acknowledged that it even happened. I go into work, I say, oh, what about the floods in Lismore? And they're like, oh, are they having floods? I mean, this is a community that's, I, I get it, we're about 18 hours away, but this is Australia. And the reason that they've had the flood, so, I mean, it was the one in 100 year flood. And then again, five years later, even bigger than the one in 100 year flood. I mean, Townsville went through floods and we've done nothing. There is no mitigation plans. There's no early warning system. The houses were rebuilt on floodlands. So it's the doctors that are at the forefront of climate change. We're already seeing the impacts of bushfires, severe weather events. In fact, when you, you look at the number one killer, we, we talk about bushfires and floods, but it's actually the extreme um, heat that is that causes more people or more people die from. And it's the elderly and it's the children, but it's also the vulnerable people that take a lot of medications. And one of the simple medications that we prescribe for heart health would be um, a diuretic, fruzamide. So many people are on that drug, which make them susceptible to heat waves. So we're already treating all of these. So to put your head in the sand about climate change is completely irrational and irresponsible because doctors have a duty of care. I have a duty of care to address climate change. It's not some distant problem. We can't say it's in 30 years time. It's happening now. And I think it's important to acknowledge too that in Queensland, we're actually particularly vulnerable because we've got that decentralised population. We've got thousands of kilometres of coastline, but you've also got the tropical and the subtropical climates as well so you know increased risk of vector-borne diseases and dengue fever probably ross river fever those kinds of things have you started to see any differences in in clinic or do you know like any of your colleagues have they started seeing an increase in these types of diseases being presented look not with infectious diseases we're still uh, and i mean it's still the number one killer is COVID, and we are still seeing that increase here in North Queensland. In Townsville, we were pretty lucky. We watched it all unfold in Victoria and then in Sydney, and we carried on as if it didn't exist. And I think that's a problem, is that our community still don't think COVID is real and still don't think it exists. So we're still dealing with the fallout of that, and the fallout of that is the fact that people now can't get surgery. So the delays in surgery, because those beds are being taken up by COVID patients. We, I see that there was a few uh, outbreaks of Japanese encephalitis, but we only had two really um, in Queensland and none in North Queensland. 
So for us, it really is still COVID and the fact that our system can't cope with now people not getting surgery. So on our show, you know, we we tend, tend to go a little bit deep and, and it can get a bit intense and, and make us feel a bit kind of give up. Like, what's the point, right? But that's why we always like to finish on a positive. And we typically ask, well, what can we as, the, as a typical listener do to take action? However, in this particular case, I'm going to ask the question a little bit differently because you are taking action. Angela, tell us about why you are standing for your local federal election. <laughs> yes, uh, but more so also as an independent. Why is that important? Ben, I did all those things. I wrote to my local politicians. I wrote to federal politicians. And you just get a lovely letter back and nothing changes. Nothing has changed in the over 12 years I've been in medicine. So I, uh, I remember reading something, the biggest, you know, the biggest threat is the, is the belief that someone else would do it. And I, that was me. I kept thinking, oh, this person will do it or that person will do it. And then I realized, well, why don't you just do it? So having no experience in politics whatsoever, but just the passion and as a doctor, uh, an understanding that we just advocate, we advocate for human health. So that just translates into advocating for planetary health because we depend on our planet. And that's why I did it. I just put my money where my mouth is and stood up. And the reason I'm running as an independent is because people don't trust politicians. I don't trust politicians. I don't trust political parties. I don't feel like they represent me. And when I look at all the candidates and the political parties running, they definitely don't represent my community. And importantly, the, the minor groups in our community well, the marginalised groups in our community being Aboriginal people, Torres Strait Islander people. We have a high refugee population in Townsville. They don't represent the community. So as an independent, I'm not bound to any party agenda. I'm only bound to my community and I'll only be answerable to my community. So that's why I'm standing as an independent to try and get people engaged in politics, knowing that there's no hidden agenda to why I'm doing it. In fact, I'm, I've had to cut back work just to do it. Um, and, uh, and the only reason I need to continue to work is to fund the campaign. So a lot of people think that I'm being paid to do it, but I'm not. It's myself and my husband who, who grows organic ginger and bananas on our farm <laughs> and hay. We, that's how we're getting through it. So you've mentioned, um, you know, this is a bit tongue in cheek and, and we've obviously had a fantastic conversation to this point, but, you know, we talk about trusting politicians, we talk about, you know, taking action. So I guess to sum up, why should we trust you? And more importantly, what are you wanting to see change? What what are, say, you know, say your top three key things that you really want to fight for and see happen? Um. I'd like to think people can trust me because I'm walking the walk. We live off grid out here. We're growing our own fruit and vegetables. It's organic farming, sustainable farming. So I'm not just, yeah, talking the talk. We're walking the walk. The big things for me is actual, we need political change. If we don't 
address political change, we will never achieve the rest. We need to remove the roadblocks and hold the government accountable. We need cultural change and obviously climate change. So they are my big three changes. And I think the time is right. Um, people have had enough. There's that mistrust in the government. They've had 10 years to take action on all these three things and have done nothing. And in fact, they're putting in roadblocks from actually doing anything. And, you know, to just kind of follow that thread a little bit, we we have the solutions with within our grasp and we've known that for a very long time, but it just takes the political will to actually make that come to fruition. So I'm just, yeah, my parting shots is I'm just wishing you all the best. It sounds like that fire in your belly is steering you in the right direction and hopefully more people come forth and start to take action like you are as well. Um, parting shots, Ben? Uh, inspiring. And thank you. Um, you know, this is a conversation we had looked forward to having because it's hard to have some of those difficult conversations because, you know, Emma and I have often, we've for a long time wanted to, to and, and we will try and do it again, but really get to the heart of what we see as tricky conversations because we feel we're not qualified enough to and we're not probably in some respects because we don't work in those communities and and we're not from those communities so what right have we say to be um well i don't want to say be judgmental i think an important lesson is to not be quick to judge someone oh why are you smoking you know it's bad for you you should give it up are you stupid or something you know it's easy to say that but it's it's and I'll say the word again, empathetic. It's important to be empathetic because there's so much going on behind the scenes. And you've shown us a bit of that, um, which hopefully is inspiring more of our listeners to perhaps in their special field or area that they can actually, you know what, I could also take some action here and be a catalyst for change in my community or in the space that I work with. Um, yeah, so. Thank you um, is my parting shot. Um, and just a side note to our listeners. Um, I know, Angela, you said you're off grid and so on. You're walking the walk. No, she's not on dial up. Um, it's just the, the beauty of rural Queensland. So we apologize for the audio quality in some parts of this uh, episode, but we're, we're immensely grateful for your time um, and good luck. Good luck. And um, any listeners from Townsville area, you know where to put your vote. We're apolitical, but we're telling you who to vote for. <laughs> <laughs> So thank you very much for, for coming on to the show, Angela. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Emma. And thank you for putting up with my connection. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Lentil Intervention Podcast. If you found this interesting, make sure you subscribe and share it with your friends.